Really True Fiction is a podcast exploring famous stories to discover the wisdoms, lessons, insights, and ideas therein. Be advised that there will be heavy spoilers for whatever story we are discussing in this episode, as well as potential spoilers for other stories. Check episode notes or social media posts for additional spoilers. Please note that this podcast contains so many bad words and so many crude observations. If this is not your jam, please don't bring the toast. Welcome to another episode of Really True Fiction. My name is Luke Mason. And my name is David Parker. David, according to Tyler Durden, self-improvement is masturbation. So my question to you is, how many times a day do you self-improve? <laughs> I mean, I feel like that's a question I don't feel like answering to my uh, to my co-host. So are you saying that you're so good you never need to self-improve? Yeah, exactly. Really? I, just, I, I coast through with no How many days on average do you go before you need to self-improve again? Oh, man. Sometimes it could be weeks. Sometimes wow. it could be hours. It's amazing how impressive you already are then. <laughs> I, I know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so, sometimes... Sometimes you get so lonely, there's nothing else to do but self-improve, hey? <laughs> well, as long as you're making it productive, right? <laughs> you know, this reminds me of a joke I always imagined making about the song Long View by Green Day, which is a great song. It's actually my favorite Green Day song. And I actually played this song a few times when I was in a band in Korea, so it was possible, but I, I never struck up the nerve to it because the song Long View is all about drugs and masturbation. Really? So, I, yeah, I imagined going up to the microphone in front of a crowd and saying, all right, this next song is all about drugs and masturbation, but I want to make it very clear to everyone listening, I never do drugs. <laughs> <laughs> which is true I don't that was know the that was the joke that you wanted to make <laughs> yeah yeah it's like when, you know so everyone has different fantasies but um i think i self-improved there we just go managed to not say it <laughs> anyway welcome this episode we're going to be talking about fight club the 1999 film directed by david fincher starring brad pitt edward norton and helena bonham carter and a very blonde jared leto right true <laughs> true <laughs> I know he was in probably some roles before this one, but this was an early one, I think, for his career. And it's based on the 1996 novel by Chuck Palahniuk of the same name. You know, I realized I haven't seen this movie in probably 10 years. Yeah, I mean, it had been it. a long time for me as well. I and, don't think it would be nearly that long. But. And I forgot about Brad Pitt and all of his spiked hair glory yeah of, back of back, late 90s back when the late 90s you know that was kind of you your hair well it's probably the most wet dream brad pitt era i would hey? think so yeah like that was when he was kind of like him without a shirt was the was what drew the people to watch the film right <laughs> yeah so him is tyler durden and uh what's your what was your do you remember the first time you saw fight club Yes, it was with Kendall, and it was at Trinity, probably in his dorm. We watched it. I remember just being blown away by the ideas, uh, because they just throw philosophy at you throughout Mm -hmm. this film, the little lines. And also, I mean, I think I've been kind of guarded from gritty things uh, growing up, right? right? There wasn't as much gritty, dark nihilism, wasn't even a a thing, so... It was a confrontation with 
people who were addressing the problems that I knew were the problems. I think that's one of the good things about religion. It tells you what the problem is. Right. Uh, but they were addressing it with completely different solutions. <laughs> and uh, I, I, I always, I mean, I think I was saying to uh, someone recently that I think Fight Club is almost like the siren song of a generation of men. Mm. Like you, or not, not, sorry, a coming of age right. uh, film for a lot of men. Like, mm. a, like, I don't know very many, or men my age, or maybe a little younger and a little older who haven't seen this film. Sure. Like, yeah. And if you it's reference a huge it, huge movie. If you reference it, people will get the references. Mm-hmm. It's it's one of those like cultural icons, I think, yeah. that I don't know whether you call it a cult classic or not. I don't know how much money it made. It certainly penetrated the pop culture consciousness mm. of, a, of a generation, particularly, I think, of men. Yeah. Well, and I, I think it was actually pretty successful. Yeah, I, came imagine, out. I mean, yeah. obviously, <laughs> Brad Pitt and Edward Norton <laughs> being... They're a bit of draws. Yeah. But, I mean, it's also a, an R-rated, I would guess. I mean, not that that really yeah. matters to our audience or us, but... Yeah, there's some brutal um, scenes in it. There's for some sure. very brutal scenes. Yeah, yeah. I um, I think that's a good way of putting it. Actually, I I probably shouldn't admit this, or at least it's not flattering to me. But I'm pretty sure the reason I first started saying I liked Fight Club, I, I would say that even before I watched it, because I knew it was a movie that was cool. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> right. Almost like Pulp Fiction. Sure, like yeah, Tarantino, yeah, yeah. right. Well, yeah, I. I think I, because I was 12 when Fight Club came out. Yeah. So I definitely didn't watch it when it came out. It was probably been about five years later, maybe. And, you know, at that age where you're like 16, 17, where you're like so much of your life is spent trying to impress your peers. Yes. Right. Right. (laughs) And it's so different now. Um, (laughs) Where Fight Club was just a movie that was still talked about even five years later quite a bit i i know i sorry i remember now too it was um in grade 11 my first year when i went to actual public school i took a drama film and television course which is like the one of the only classes i still remember from high school right because the teacher was great and it was like the forging of a deeper appreciation for movies because i always liked movies before that but i learned a lot more about like what goes into movie making and what makes them better and there's about five movies that that teacher just always talked about and fight club was one of them (laughs) about just the grittiness of it but the way that david fincher i think this is a really this could even be a fincherism maybe in a lot of his films is that it's very stylized brutality yes hey like it's not visceral like it, it it's brutal there's blood there's intensity but just the way the camera moves and a lot of like not even and the score like there's a lot of kind of almost electro music going on right. a lot, which kind of makes it feel really well produced, but well produced brutality. I don't know. Right. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because it's kind of it is it has a bit of a sheen to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like there's a a fantasy world that's been yeah. created here. I think there's a very clean aesthetic. Yes. To Fight Club, which is weird because it's a dirty movie. Dirty and right? brutal, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, that's and, really and, interesting. And I feel that also about Seven, another one of his movies with and Brad Pitt. The Social Network feels very clean too. Yeah. Very yeah. just kind of tight. Yeah. Very tight movies that move well and have this like pseudo electronic feel to them almost, right? Yeah. So it's an interesting, just a, from a film point of view, it's an interesting uh, way to tell a story, right? So I, I always appreciated that. But I don't know. Like, I know we'll get into it. I am, I always have loved Fight Club. But being at a, it's probably been about a decade since I've actually seen it. it. On this rewatch, I wouldn't say I liked it less. 
but I thought that the two leads were less heroic this watch through yeah. than I would have yeah. when I was I in my early 20s. Well, I think I was thinking about this with True Detective too, right? But like I was actually talking to my friend Josiah about this last night, but it's just kind of funny when you think about how you lived in your 20s. Like mm-hmm. myself, you know, very eating out all the time, smoking a pack a day, you know, drinking. And that's that mindset, that way of living kind of, I don't know, filters into your mm-hmm. whole sense of being. And of course, in that context, someone like Tyler Durden would be would be the kind of person. And and of and of course you like kind of, you know, give the big middle finger to <laughs> IKEA furniture yeah. and like and producing the perfect condo and like you like that idea because you're fucking you're a scrub. Yeah. Like, yeah, like yeah. you're you're living you're living this, I don't know, half cocked life and so yeah i i think it's interesting that perhaps as we've matured mm. um our heroes maybe change yeah um, totally because they would have been here heroic maybe not heroes but heroic to me like a, a kind of an example worth really emulating like an uberman like i mean tyler durden <laughs> seems yeah. seems like he's larger than life like i mean again we'll unpack this more but just this kind of idea around because I think in the movie, the two mains, I mean, it's going to be weird to call him the narrator of the whole movie, but that's what he's billed as. So Edward Norton is the narrator and Brad Pitt is Tyler Durden. His, oh, I mean, we didn't even talk about the twist yet, which we'll get to, but <laughs> Tyler Durden, I guess they would have been like mid to late 20s is kind of what we're led to think. So they have a certain appeal to young men and disaffected men and men without maybe a strong social network themselves and men who feel angsty and left behind those are those are the people who would find these two heroic yes right yeah and i guess maybe in my early 20s i wasn't exactly any of those things but there was a kind of a more fuck it burn it all down energy i had at the time that would have made the suave coolness of tyler durden seem suaver and cooler than it yeah. does at this stage in well my life i mean like I'm... even looking at where he lives or where they <laughs> right, live yeah. like you don't see that as repulsive when you're uh when you're younger because some of your apartments might have looked like not that bad but you know what i mean but now i'm like oh with like, lots of friends living there like why would you want to live there like <laughs> oh my god Where whereas like the reason they live in that house, I mean, the real reason is is more complicated because of the twist of the movie. But, I mean, the ostensible reason is because they're renegades. Yeah, and, <laughs> right? and also they're, they're they rebel- don't they don't rebels. pay rent as far as we can tell. Yeah, like, there's yeah, no yeah. it's abandoned. And, yeah, it's a squatter. Yeah, and then I guess before we dive in, we should also just quickly mention because this is film related. Um, this movie actually has one of the most talked about plot twists that i can remember i i I always um whenever i go through my litany of all-time great cinematic plot twists it's always you know memento even empire strikes back has a great plot twist with revealing that vader is luke's dad uh usual suspects and i always throw in fight club because i didn't know and i mean it's like vader being luke's dad It becomes obvious upon reviewing. And the ubiquity of the knowledge of the plot twist that Tyler is just the narrator, they're the same person. That's just kind of so known that it's not even really, 
it's not it certainly wouldn't be considered novel to point out that there's a twist in this movie right but when you do watch it for the first time without Mm -hmm. any foreknowledge yeah it is it's uh, it it, it's one of those because they're so different shit right they're such different people that it is narratively cool to think how tyler is just one part of the narrator yeah and the part that he's trying to really be in some sense right Uh, yeah and then is his more true self is tyler yeah and and the the self of him that is tyler is pulling the rest of him along as he's still stumbling through his life and his his insomnia right yeah yeah i mean obviously no one listening to this is going to be surprised i would say that there's a twist and that tyler and the narrator are the same person in the end but i still think it's one of the great plot twists in cinematic history which i guess novel history too because it was a book first yes yeah it's it's and it's so well done because so many moments are given to you to for you to know that they are the same person they're you know marla and and tyler and him (laughs) are never essentially in the same room together um like any good plot twist the signs are so there and so obvious and yet you just have no idea when you're watching it Mm -hmm. yeah and just the last point on this, I guess, unless there's anything else you want to say, is it's kind of um, they make like you can't miss the plot twist, but it doesn't feel stupid either, right? It's just kind of like the last ten minutes of the movie. One of his minions just like you're Tyler Durden, right? And then you're like, wait, what? And there it is, right? Yeah. Um, and it's, yeah, there's not a build up. It's just like, a, oh, yeah, this should be obvious. Yeah, I mean, if you think of Usual Suspects, there's a great plot twist in Usual Suspects, but it's like the way that the, the reveal is edited and the music and, and the. I know, they're, slow they're motion trying to make acting, you feel something like, here. Okay, can't miss this. Yeah. Right? And then Luke's, obviously, Luke Skywalker. No! Like, it's <laughs> yeah. just, it's so on There's the no nose. Dra- dramatizing of it. And it just seems like, oh, this is the next thing in the movie. What a crazy thing, though. Yeah. What know? a crazy movie, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So, with the narrator, maybe the best place to start with is the insomnia. Because that's kind of how the movie starts with him, yes. right? So, so you want to do it plot-wise as opposed to character-wise? Oh, we haven't done a plot rundown. No, no. <laughs> Very quick. Okay. The narrator, Edward Norton, works for... Uh, a insur- large car company. A large car company doing insurance inspections. Like, basically, do we have to pay out this insurance based on... Not well... Or what's worth doing. He investigates crashes yes. of said company's cars... To, to make de- sure... To determine, determine To determine whether or not they should do a recall. Right. Because... And, and, and that's based on a calculation mm-hmm. of how, how much... <laughs> How, like how many of these cars are likely to break down, right. and if they do break down, what's our payout going to be mm-hmm. for the failure? And I would say that there's a massive element of the banality of evil going oh, on in that situation, Just right? Like, where like you could not make a more boring scenario that determines many people's lives. Yes, yeah, <laughs> which is just the calculation of whether to recall these cars or not, and and that's manifested in the callousness in the way a lot of people talk about like the burnt bodies in yeah. the car. It's really horrible. Uh, so he works his very corporate white collar job. He has he's getting no meaning out of it whatsoever. He looks like he's about twenty seven. Uh, so he starts going to these support groups to find community. Basically, he meets this woman Marla Singer at these, and they're both what they're called like travelers, I guess, imposters, it, yeah, 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 who are going to support groups to find community or something, some form of meaning, who don't actually suffer 
from the afflictions that the support group is about, about. Yeah, exactly. So there's some fraud going on here. <laughs> some emotional fraud anyway. And then they agree to go to separate ones because they don't want to see each other because it reminds, well, especially the narrator, it reminds him of his lie, basically. Uh, he's on a flight. He meets this character named Tyler Durden who sells soap. He gets his card. When he returns home, his apartment has been burned. Uh, blown up. Blown yeah. up, yeah. Um, so he, for some reason, calls Tyler, meets up with him. They have a few beers. Tyler invites him over to his house to live or stay with him. And then he just ends up living with Tyler. They grow this friendship. I don't even know if I'd call it a friendship. Some sort of relationship. Partnership <laughs> yeah. of sorts. Like, yeah. Uh, they start a fight club, an underground fight club, which, you know, roll credits. And then this morphs into a more anarchistic group called Project Mayhem with all of the people who are inspired by Fight Club. And then they start perpetrating really intense acts of vandalism, which culminates at the end of the movie of them blowing up all these major credit card headquarters, I guess. Yeah, like all these banks and stuff. They're trying to get the credit history to zero. Mm Mm-hmm. And the great reveal is that Tyler is the narrator, and it's actually been the narrator doing all the things that Tyler does. And that's really, that really makes you look at it different because the narrator is kind of this pleasant but beta type of guy who has emotions but doesn't really want to put himself out there for anything. And then Tyler starts to bring out some of his more energetic sides or more passionate or visceral sides of his nature, but we find out that that actually is just him being that way right and then there's these flashback scenes from the movie where when it was edward norton and brad pitt in a scene together it's just edward norton by himself which makes him look crazy (laughs) which he is (laughs) which he is in a way yeah and so then the end of the movie is him telling marla that (laughs) she met him at a very strange time in his life (laughs) as the buildings are blowing as the buildings are blowing up and then scattered throughout this yeah the themes of nihilism the misplaced sense of meaning for an apparently an entire generation of men and I don't know, just kind of mental health and even some elements of cultish thinking, I would say. Yeah. And I guess I would say one of the cool things about Fight Club is you get a movie you don't think you're getting when you're watching it. I, I don't know. Like, I would want to unpack that more, but it's like kind of watching Fight Club and the experience of it is like, oh, okay, these um these guys are fighting and they're hanging out and they're saying weird things and... Tyler is doing weird things, but it's like it doesn't feel as deep as a lot of the themes are in it. I think part of that is also the way Fincher made it. Yeah, he's making it fun and and entertainment, but a lot of the things that are being talked about and thought about are like maybe the most important human questions. <laughs> exactly. So it, this is like a a blockbuster Hollywood movie about very deep themes. Yes, and this is what you get: is you get a movie that you don't really on the surface understand that it's about these deep things because it's got like this most gorgeous human being in all of history brad pitt at his most gorgeous time in life (laughs) being gorgeous right so (laughs) yes yes anyway that's the plot rundown so do we ever get the narrator's name no no we're never that's intentional oh so like it's funny because and we don't really understand that and and it's hinted at a few times in the movie too right where it's like what's your name there's a there's a scene where marla says what's your real name because he shows up at all of these support right, with groups with a fake names. name. Yes, yes. Like Rupert, Rupert and, and Cornelius. Cornelius. Yeah, yeah. So we never actually do. And even in the credits, it just says narrator. So, but I guess technically his name could be Tyler. 
Right. Like the, it the, could be Tyler Durden. Yeah, the guy at the end says, you're Tyler Durden. Yeah. So I guess his name is Tyler Durden. And you see it on all the planes, so he's yeah. got to have a fake ID or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it would be very stubs. confusing for us to call him Tyler Durden. So we'll call him the narrator. Okay. <laughs> yes. All right. He gets a title. <laughs> <laughs> and he is. He does a lot of voiceover, which is how we learn a lot about what's going on in his head. But he is, in the, at the start of the movie, he's suffering from insomnia. Have you ever suffered from insomnia before? Oof. Very rarely, but I, it's horrific when it occurs. I really hate lying in bed and not being able to sleep, which is not a common thing for me at all. Like, mm. Usually I lie down and I'm out for whatever, seven or eight hours. Yeah. yeah, but, yeah. Um, well, he describes it as something like you're never wholly awake and you're never wholly asleep. Now, again, narratively, this is an awesome setup for us, the audience, to realize he doesn't know that he's Tyler because he does all of these things in – I guess, what would be his insomniatic moments. Right. Right? So that he can't even remember them. So that's good That's good foreshadowing, right? Like, we're being told about a, a an affliction he has that makes it hard for him to really know what's going on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which yeah. makes the fact that he's doing all these other things more organic that he doesn't remember, right? And the thing that cancels his insomnia, though, is going to support groups. I think it's like emotion, the mm-hmm. the expression of emotion. He seems so bottled up. Yeah. And and nothing in his life is giving him any sense of purpose or meaning that when he sees these people confronted by death right. or disease or heartache or, or whatever they're going through, and then he's able to fake an emotion with them, that actually gives him the catharsis of a real emotion. Yeah. And, I mean, he talks about how he cried. He just let it all go. I, I just let go, mm-hmm. right? And and then in, in that letting go, I think, is what brought him peace. And he slept like a baby. Yeah, right? just slept. Or babies don't sleep this good. Yeah. So I guess here, I'll, I'll put it to you in the form of a question because this could be interesting. Do you think what he did was unethical? Oof. I mean, as, insofar as I, I think that lying always causes you problems. So, yes. I mean, lying is, but I mean, was it a unethical thing that caused other people harm? No, I, I don't think that's the case. No. But I think that the very act of lying is self-damaging. Mm. So, But if you think about it, he got what he needed out of it. Yes. Right? Like he got the therapy he needed well, to help him with his problems. often unethical things get you the things that you want. Yeah, but I, I'm saying, yeah, there's like a very base level where they do, right? Like I steal the bike, I have a bike now, right? right? Yeah. But what's so fascinating about this whole segment is that the pretend uh, the testicular cancer and what were some of the other ones like parasites? Yeah, or a couple of blood yeah, parasites, the blood parasites, or... and uh, was it what tuberculosis was yeah, one of yeah. them, right? What was interesting is that he didn't get some sort of base or fake benefit out of it. Like he got a genuine uh, psychological breakthrough. Yeah, <laughs> yeah <laughs> right. True. So it actually, if you imagine it. If you remove the specific reason for the support group, if support groups exist to help people through almost literally dark nights of the soul, that's what the support group did for him, right? So in a sense, the support group itself completed its mandate when it came to the narrator. Right, yeah. (laughs) Because it's not like he... The satisfaction that he got out of it wasn't um, a kind of sense of superiority to the other people. Or even that like he's getting away with a lie. Right, which would have been the equivalent of, I think, a base success. Let's right, say, yeah. <laughs> right, right. Whereas he he seems to have this thorough and actual breakthrough. So I, at first, I'm like, what a shitty thing to do. But at the same time, I was like, but he was genuinely helped by it in a way he needed to be helped. 
Right. So, so that makes it a little bit yeah. more muddy. It's just a muddier case as opposed to if he was just cynical about it and then well, yeah, made I fun think of if he was going there, later. yeah, making fun of them or like going there to feel better about himself. But that's not the impression you ever get. He's going there because he wants to feel something. Like he's he's looking for something because mm-hmm. uh, he just feels lost. And I guess that goes to his conversation, his first conversation with Tyler on the plane, mm. right where where he's like a single serving friend and he's yeah. got this like conception of life and and Tyler's just like this seems stupid mm-hmm. like why are you living like this mm-hmm. like why are, were we meant to live like this yeah 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 so to me this does open a much broader interesting question that we'll definitely not solve in this podcast but what are some scenarios in the world maybe where on the surface it seems really shitty or fraudulent but the actual thing is helping you in the way you need helped. So it's kind of, I don't even know, acceptable or even like, like, I don't know if, if would the narrator have been able to have the breakthroughs he did if all of the other people knew he wasn't actually, well, he couldn't even do it. He couldn't even do it when Marla was there. So it was even one person knowing. So I don't think he would have been able to. Sure. That's a good point. Right. Yeah. Well, at least he doesn't think he'd be able mm-hmm. to. So I guess there's a whole different category of like hmm, doing something on the surface unethical, but it is providing you with the service you need. And you're right, though. I am pulled against it being a lie of some sort or at least an omission. But I don't know what else would have helped him that wasn't like, you know maniacal and homicidal right which it ends yeah. up being later right? well maybe uh i mean maybe he the big issue seems to be that he doesn't have any purpose in his life and he sees his generation as a purposeless mindless almost you know wasted right i mean you're we're all part of the same compost heap right is a is another great quote from this and so it's like it's the belittling of the individual it's the it's the idea that there is no purpose there is no meaning and like I think there's few examples of his, his like his life at the beginning just it does seem just empty, mm-hmm. and so I think it, the question isn't was he able to find meaning in those groups because he wasn't all he was able to do was was get catharsis because he was able to express emotion right which I think is what the problem was to begin with yeah well I guess then I would it would it would be an interesting case of ends justifying the means where it actually seems like for once in this scenario, the ends actually work. Right. <laughs> because right. the means are shitty, but it does fix his insomnia. And it doesn't actually hurt anyone. And, it, and it's not hurting anyone because no one finds out. Yeah. It's like a it's like a, a lie that's just there, but no one is gets privy to, so it doesn't hurt anybody. And then when he loses his insomnia, like we learn later where he, as Tyler does all the terrible things he does because of this kind of insomniatic or at least partially. So that hadn't happened. We assume that Tyler essentially disappears during his insomnia and only reappears Mm -hmm. when Marla enters the picture and, (laughs) and brings his insomnia back. And then that's kind of when it seems that his alter ego introduces itself to him Mm -hmm. because it's like, well, now I need, I need you to know that I exist so that you keep me around Mm -hmm. because insomnia is not enough. You know what? As I'm thinking about this, I think you're probably more right than I am in the sense that he, that line where he says, 
when Marla shows up, her lie reflected my lie. Yeah. It is bringing him back to the kind of like consciousness of what he's doing. And I actually think one of the big payoffs of this movie is all of the bad shit that happens in your life if you're not paying attention to it and you're not paying it like uh, the way we phrase it sometimes is making the subconscious conscious. Yeah. Like how much, how many terrible things happen in this movie through his subconscious. Whereas Marla brings it to the conscious, like you were mentioning. And, and so, yeah, that's interesting. I don't know. It's just a weird, I feel like this scenario is a, it would be a good like thought experiment in an introductory, introductory moral philosophy class. Right. Because like actual most things in life, there's a trade-off of goods, right? Or there's a trade-off of, benefit let's say (laughs) that it's not always like path a good path b bad right it's like path a has lots of good things and some bad things and vice versa and And which one do you pick knowing when yeah and so but this was a line that really struck me and this was i think the line that actually bonded him to marla originally when people think you're dying they really listen to you not not just waiting for their yeah, turn to and talk. Says yeah. Instead of just waiting for their turn to speak. And I think that's worth a meditation for a second. <laughs> yeah. Uh, like, how does your intuition pull there? Like, if you knew someone had a terminal illness, would you listen to them more than if they didn't? See, this is it's an interesting question. I, I think a lot of people find being around people with terminal illnesses disconcerting. Mm. Because they don't really want to think about death. And so, like, people say that, but maybe it's other people who are dying are also like i think an awareness and an acceptance of death brings about a greater desire to be present in the given in any given moment and so yes i mean in essence i think that that really is what listening to someone is it's being present mm. it's right it's not yeah. thinking about something else or or being distracted by something else it's like which is an emotion I think we can all relate to. Oh, yeah. I mean, how many how many of us, all of us, have phones where, you know, if it goes off, it'll be the thing we look at when we're talking to someone. I mean, I'm the mm. I'm the captain of that <laughs> of that crime, like. But even more specifically or even literally, I so was resonant with the idea of okay, I want you to be done talking so I can say the thing I need to say next. Right. <laughs> right, like right. that's a yeah. very comprehensible thing. Yeah, I mean, that's I, a I think something that we've all felt. I mean, Especially, let's say, at like school, when you're like lecturers are maybe asking questions, are we listening to our fellow students' questions, or are we just waiting for our turn to show how smart we are? Maybe even when we're podcasting, right? Yeah, like <laughs> to make that, it that can as happen as right? possible. Right? <laughs> I, I'll admit there are times when we're talking, and I'm like, oh yeah. Sometimes you're saying things, and I'm like jiving. I'm like, yes, keep going. And then sometimes like. Oh, when are you going to be done, David? I got the next point. <laughs> right? <laughs> right. It's like, but the, again, this is, I think, we'll talk about this more. This is the payoff of this movie is all of this shit is subconscious or unconscious. I, I never am quite sure exactly which because there's a slight difference. I'd say unconscious. Right. And I think also on the topic of death, there's a kind of shared fiction that we have. People don't think about death. No. Right? We just don't. It just doesn't, it doesn't occur to us to think about it because it is in one sense, petrifying. Yes. Right? Yeah, like it, it, yeah. would, it would paralyze you. If that was if you, all you that, thought about. If yeah. that was all you thought about. And it's, you know, it's... Well, and there are a lot of uh, mental health... This is the inter- This is why one of the reasons I love this movie is it's really a, a movie about mental health, fundamentally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And one of the things it's pushing through on is, like, what do you do about death? Mm-hmm. Right? Because yeah. 
because death is coming and and there's obviously some great insights that we'll get into on that from this movie but i think that what happens when people are confronted by death and one of my favorite books is called my bright abyss Mm. and it's by one of one of a poet laureate from the united states and it's uh, literally him chronicling confronting the fact that he has a terminal illness wow and he's going to die right and he and he just writes about it which I think is is such a cool and authentic. I think there's nothing more authentic than that conversation, right? Right, because because that's the, the that is the one thing that bonds all of us, no matter what. Mm-hmm. And we all kind of know it's there. We're right? all avoiding it. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like we're all pretending. We and not even just like we act as if we won't die. Yes. <laughs> yes. Right? Like we live. We. It seems to me to be a a mark of the human condition that the best way to deal with the terror of death is to just keep out of sight, out of mind forever. And I think what's interesting about a terminal illness is that that makes that not possible. You can't do it anymore. You can't do it anymore. You have to confront it in your family, in a friend, in a friend's family. It doesn't leave that person alone. No. And and interestingly, also on the point you made about someone writing with Tilmeris, Hitchens wrote, because he was um, diagnosed with esophageal cancer, yeah. and he wrote a book called Mortality, where his like idea was, it, it, it's so strange to go from kind of crossing over from the world of the living to the world of the dying. Right. Where it was, it used to be journalists and panels, and now it was doctors and lawyers all the time. <laughs> right. And just the different way people talk to you. There's like an extra layer of compassion that can easily be patronizing sometimes. And like all of that is just an interesting side. Because I, yeah. I think that the vast majority of people just refuse to think about or deal with this problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, and I, I, well, what I, dreams may come, right? I don't. Yeah, I don't, I don't agree... That um, the best way is to avoid. Uh, I actually think that's a big problem. And I think a lot of the anxiety, I've, I've had a lot of conversations about this topic, but a lot of the anxiety-esque mental illnesses that people have now, are we, it used to be like probably if you had a wife, she was going to die in childbirth. That was pretty common. Mm-hmm. If you had kids, some of them were going to die. You're probably going to be living with your parents as they died. Mm-hmm. And death was all around you. It was there. It was in your face. It was happening all the time. It, and people just had a very different relationship with mm-hmm. death uh, than we do now, where we sanitize it. We hide our old people. Infant mortality rate is, is way down. Even miscarriages we don't talk about really anymore. And I think... Um, like you show pity when they happen or sympathy and then... And then you don't really talk yeah. about it. Mm-hmm. And I think we've stopped talking about death. We've stopped... We've, we've, we're, we, as a whole culture, we, pr- we, we elevate youth mm-hmm. and, um, and, and fantasize about youth and sexualize youth. And, and that is the you know, focus of our culture because we've kind of lost the thread on death. But I, but I think maybe the ancient wisdom, mm. the, the wisdom of, of the millennia of, of human <laughs> experience is that death is something that has to be confronted. I mean, Marcus Aurelius, you know, talks a lot about really life is about learning how to die. Right. And 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 all, all of the ancients were were pretty obsessed with this topic. Mm. We do ourselves a great disservice and now we're seeing the problems bubble up from it 
like when we don't talk about it, when we don't deal with it, when we don't mm-hmm. have those conversations because we're driving ourselves to insane. Yeah, no, I, I think I think you're definitely hitting on something here. I went to a funeral a couple of years ago. And it was the first one I'd been to back in Canada after being in Korea for a little while. And it's interesting living in a different culture because Korea definitely has a different relationship to death culturally than we do here in Canada. There's a weird kind of passive taboo in Canada around death in that you don't really talk about it unless it's happened. So it was an untimely death. And, you know, you're talking in, in in the kind of post memorial antechamber and and you know the coat room with these people and you just don't really know what to say no one knows what to say at a funeral no (laughs) Um, we used to there there used to be like this kind of well maybe 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 different uh, probably but like most things i don't want to necessarily romanticize how it used to be because there were probably some obsessions there that weren't healthy either there's a way to modernize it i think how did i phrase it i phrased it just one guy's like we don't know how to talk about death and we don't do it when it's not happening yeah right when we're not at a funeral we don't talk about it and there's like an element of morbidity to it i guess that that turns people off and that's fair that makes sense but i mean one of one of like seven main perennial philosophical insights is live in a way that death isn't a monster when it comes for you yeah, yeah. <laughs> right and how can you do that if you don't even talk about the monster if, that's coming for it's like, you well it's like uh epicureanism right uh, one of it's an interesting concept like i think this is how most people live except minus something i'll get to it but like the epicurean idea is you're Mm. hanging by a rope above the mouth of a dragon that's waiting to eat (laughs) you and there's two mice chewing this rope slowly until it's going to break and meanwhile there's some leaves sit right by you with a few drips of honey on them and even though you know that the rope is being chewed and you know the dragon's going to inevitably eat you you lick the honey off of the <laughs> off of the leaves what a great and, mental and, image and this hey? is life right <laughs> this is why some of these uh, i just love the imagery of epicurus yeah and and it's like okay so so that's kind of what we're doing we're mm-hmm. just licking the the drops of honey off the leaves just taking that moment to enjoy that well inevitable doom is coming towards us and i think we don't accept death in in our culture yeah and so i think why it's so interesting and why the point that the narrator makes is so important is that when you know someone with a terminal illness and they start talking you listen all the more closely i think because you see your own future reflected back at you in a way that you can't run and hide from and you can't pretend isn't real and because of that, it kind of forces you in, in a way that I really think is universally human for anyone who wants to be alive, which is most people, is pulling you at the kind of question of something like, what the fuck am I doing? You can't hide from that question when you're talking to someone with a terminal illness. No. It's going to be reflected back to you in some form or another of what am I doing with my life? Well, and there's three other scenes in this movie that I think we can bring into this point because yeah. I think that's a cool thing. But there's the the scene where uh, the narrator is having his hand burnt with right. acid by yeah. Tyler Durden, and Tyler Durden is is refusing to take the pain away and actually keeps pulling 
the narrator back from his de- from his desire to avoid the pain, to go to his mind palace, to to somehow escape with that really poorly CGI'd penguin. Yeah, <laughs> those yeah. CGI scenes didn't age no, well. No, they weren't. They? they weren't very good. But uh, so he's he's pulling him out of the of his desire to retreat to go into perhaps delusion, and he's saying before he's going to take the pain away. Well, which I think is just one of the most profound, is the most profound scene in this movie, okay, for sure. Yeah. And he said, before I get it, not fear. You can't fear you're going to die. You have mm. to know it. Yeah. It's only once you've lost everything that you can, that you can do anything. Mm. Right? And I think that is true because it's like you said, when you're confronted by someone with a terminal illness... You're at, you, you're forced to ask a question. Am I living the life the way I want? Which is the question you should always be asking. Not am I living the life I want, but am I living to the fullest? Am I am I milking every single moment of my existence for everything that it's worth? Like, am I experiencing it? Am I in it? Am I mm. being present? Right. Or am I, you know whittling away my days thinking about ikea furniture or whatever (laughs) else you might be thinking about wasting my time yeah so that's the one scene yeah and and just like the the note on that then is is you just made me realize it's like a double the reason why talking to someone with a terminal illness it's kind of the 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 great doubling of (laughs) confrontation psychologically because it's making the unconscious conscious so that's always important for like I hate this word because it's been so diluted and corporatized, but mindfulness yes, is yeah. in, in its most rigorous and robust form. That's what it is, is making the unconscious conscious and doing your best to keep it there. But then also you're making the most stark human reality conscious. Right. You're, <laughs> so you're doing the biggest thing with the biggest thing. I mean, there's an <laughs> elephant in the room for all of us, right? And and we kind of pretend it's not there. And, and, and there's like a spaceship on the elephant. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. always, there's yeah. a lot going on. Yeah, yeah. And so so then there's the there, the other scene. This movie plays with this this idea a mm. lot, right? Because I mean, even the Mona Lisa's falling apart, like when it's when that one tooth falls out from fighting, or. Or when... Um... <laughs> what a great line. Hey? Yeah. <laughs> There's so many great lines. Oh, there is. I've thought that one. I say that one a lot. Even the Mona Lisa's falling apart. Or the condom is the glass slipper of our generation. <laughs> I think that one's another great one. Um, <laughs> it's know. always off by midnight. And then, yeah. <laughs> I, I think it just gets left behind yes, and you see yes. if it fits. But. Sure, sure, yeah. <laughs> um, trying on many slippers. Yeah, trying on many slippers. I Sorry, second I scene. It's when they're in the car. And uh, yes. he's driving, and and he's like, just let go, you know, stop holding on. You're mm-hmm. you're clinging. You're so. He said, look at your. He says, look at yourself. You're clinging to life. You're begging existence. That you're afraid. You're just so afraid. Mm-hmm. And then when they crash, and and then you know Tyler Durden's laughing, and he's like, we just had a near life experience. <laughs> and then the third scene, which I think is very very memorable for a lot of people is outside of the restaurant where Tyler Durden's holding the gun to the to the young Korean guy's head and he says I'm going right. to kill you unless if in a few months you're not on your way to becoming a veterinarian I'm going to kill you and the narrator's so appalled and he's like how can you talk to people like this how can you do this to people and he's like tomorrow morning he's going to wake up and it'll be the best breakfast he's ever eaten mm-hmm. right so what is all this what is all this saying like 
that guy was wait was not living the life he wanted to live, and it wasn't for any other reason than that he just didn't really have anything to push him beyond the mediocre days. Subsistence. Yeah, he was just going through the motions, and and you know, I think the lesson that Tyler is trying to teach, although you know, then he moves into some weird stuff, but the lesson <laughs> he's trying to teach, and I think it's. This is the great wisdom from this film. This is the really true in this fiction mm. is you can live your life however you want. You can waste it. You can do nothing. You can go through your mediocre moments. And I want to be clear on this. It has nothing to do with how much money you have. It has nothing to do with what you get to do. Mm-hmm. Like this is the big problem with with Instagram and with with everything is where we're looking at people's highlight reels and comparing it to you know to our day to day grind, but the day to day grind can be way more beautiful than the highlight reels. It's actually a matter of perspective. Yeah, well, and actually, I think that's where a lot of the meaning comes in. Is yeah, day to day grind stuff. Yes, if you approach it correctly. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it's like David Foster Wallace. This is water, yeah, right? Yeah, He's yeah. like. He's like, there are, there's really actually no such thing as an atheist in the day-to-day kind of life, right? Because you're going to find something to give your life to. Mm-hmm. And he's like, and, and one of the maybe virtues of giving it to something beyond yourself is like, if you give it to power, like if you, if you, if it's power, you'll, you know, you'll never feel safe. If it's money, you'll never be rich enough. If it's beauty, you'll die a thousand deaths. Like there's a lot of horrible ways to live. Mm-hmm. And and I think the question that Tyler's asking is: Are we not? Are we are we going to just be clinging, afraid little beings, afraid of dying, mm-hmm. or are we going to know we're going to die? Sure. And once you know you're going to die, what's next? Mm-hmm. Okay. It, only once you've lost everything can you do <laughs> sure, anything. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, oh, man, it's hard to know which strand to grab. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, first, I, no, it's good. It's lots. It's okay. I think it's important to note that this isn't a moral injunction. No, right? exactly, it's, it's, yeah. It's, um, so it's like, it's not a kind of like... It's not normative. Uh, thou shalt not, thou shalt. Uh, and this is made even more clear with David Foster Wallace's work, you're right. But Tyler isn't saying to the narrator, you'll be a, a more ethical person, you'll be a better person. He's kind of more saying something like, the things that are bothering you, here's the, here's the fix. Here's actually how you will fix your malaise or your insomnia or your mm, ennui, your lack of meaning, your listlessness. Like what you need is to live in such a way that you have a kind of really deep appreciation for death. And the case with Raymond, the the guy that he says he's going to shoot if he doesn't become a veterinarian, that puts it very starkly because it's very visceral, right? It's like actually the death is right in front of you. And it's like, it's a good point, right? Like it's hard to argue with his logic where he says that breakfast will be the greatest he ever has again, right? I think actually it becomes more interesting and imperative and worth pursuing if it's not like a a moral yeah, I mean, like people, you don't right? have to live this way. Yeah, like you can you can continue to to whittle away your hours, wasting them, uh, however you see fit. But see, I would even, uh, <laughs> and I think the I way only... that, they're, that they're wasted. Okay, and you don't like the word wasted. Well, I don't. I just uh, here's another corporatized term that I hate, but I think it's funny, so I'm going to use it. Ironically, it's like I'll give a little pushback on that. Yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> I, I would even say like saying it like whittling away your life 
has a kind of connotation of pejorativeness to it that has a oh i'm doing something wrong right and i and right. I, it could be it might be i'm not saying it's not i'm saying i just don't even know how that's how i would frame it because it doesn't seem like, like that's not exactly how Tyler no, frames it's, it. It's either, the difference right? between being awake and asleep. Yeah, exactly. Right, right. You can you can sleepwalk through your life, which is what we see the narrator doing at the beginning, mm-hmm. or you can live your life mm-hmm. focusing on being alive. Yeah, right? I think I think that's why the understanding of death is important. Exactly. Like why we ha- why we should think about it, it because it it gives us a greater appreciation for for every moment. And like one of the great tragedies, I would say, I'm, and I will say it's a tragedy, is those people who live their whole lives looking forward to something in the future. <laughs> yeah. Like what is more tragic than that guy who works his whole life for enti- retirement and then dies a month after he retires? Well, yeah, I mean, it, it's just so, I mean, there's, there's a double tragedy there in that a lot of our uh, <laughs> narratives uh, encourage that no i no. <laughs> right oh, oh so, yeah so like get, it's, well, a, it's a it's a natural does a great job on that too yeah, right it's a natural built-in quality into humans that gets exacerbated in a negative way yes. by particular stories yes right and those stories you or, know, or people that profit from them and, different ways yeah. our stories are told like it's not necessarily inherent in a story but it can be accentuated like obviously different parts of the story can be put that way and so yeah you're right. Like the, I mean, we've talked about this before. Like uh, one of my major intellectual overcomings, I guess, is my ability to put to bed teleology. Yeah. The desire, the the feeling like everything is coming to some sort of great culmination and fulfillment. Capital T teleology. Yes. I would still say I am comfortable of using like lowercase t teleology for all of my mini projects along the right. way. Right. <laughs> right. Right. But yeah, that um that that sadness of putting so much dependence on the future because what in reality what that means is that you're just gonna buy shit you don't want off ikea yeah (laughs) right and and you're gonna work a job you don't want to buy shit you don't need yes which is another line from Uh, tyler in the movie right yeah and and or eventually your shit ends up owning you Mm -hmm. you know but i think the the really important line is you have to lose everything in order so that you can do anything Okay, and, but- I, and, and here's why I think it's an important line. Because until you've accepted, mm. if you live in fear mm-hmm. of death or avoidance of death, you're going to A, have a lot of anxiety, but B, and this is far worse, you are going to cling to things like a job you hate mm-hmm. because it provides you with things like shelter and things like that. Because really what you're doing is you're staving off death. You're afraid of dying, mm-hmm. and so you're going to. But what you've actually done in that living in fear is destroyed your opportunity to live, to actually live. Mm-hmm. And I don't even think you have to quit that job to live. No, I think that's yeah. the important part. You can transform how you view anything in your life, and that is the great wonder of being a human. Yeah, well, I mean, the the whole one of the. I mean, uh, maybe I've said it differently already, but. The real like lesson in this movie is um, how being a, a spectator of your life is so much less fulfilling than being a participant in it. Yeah, right. Like the passive yeah. life will leave you feeling empty as opposed to the active one. And I think that's what I, that's really kind of what I'm trying to mean is the difference between ethics and meaning is that the whole idea that Tyler is trying to get into the narrator's head is that it's like internal to him. Yes. It's, it's his own day-to-day attention paying, whereas, you know, morality consists more of 
like how you treat other people. Yeah. So it's not totally divorced, but it's not the primary focus, right? No. Like the primary focus is like you would need to do this even if you never there weren't any other people around. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like you would need to find something, and that and that's interesting because you're right. You're you're bringing up, and I hadn't thought about this because I yeah, I don't really think about this movie this way, even though I should, given the twist. That part of Tyler is kind of like giving the narrator some sort of positive maybe not the most positive way of doing it but something like something worth thinking about yes let's say, right yeah he's definitely giving him something worth thinking about the trouble is that because of further inattention and maybe this is genius of the writing further inattention allows tyler to go too far yeah right yeah if if the narrator can somehow wake up in that moment where it is like the car scene or the raymond scene which are maybe borderline even but i would say even the hand burning scene for sure if he can wake up in that moment maybe he doesn't let that part of his consciousness go too far right i mean and this is the whole moderation and all things i mean like it seems to me that what he create what he's he's so desirous of of control and actually having something it, like he he feels the system has betrayed him he feels a lot of things right mm-hmm. obviously cuz ask tyler rants he feels these things we you know we're we were promised that we were all going to be movie stars (laughs) and you know and wealthy and and we're slowly realizing that we're not yeah and we're pissed off about it right just something funny one of the lasting things from this movie with me is always the first person of jack's organs yes (laughs) yeah yeah i am jack's raging bile duct yeah (laughs) when uh, tyler hooks up with marlo the first time it's like i thought that was such a funny like because not this is this is this is such a 90s movie right yes the beginning of really intelligent subversion of expectations oh all these organs but it's all of the like there's so many it's a weird ones, weird yeah. organs, yeah, right? Yeah. Until at the end, it's Jack's broken heart. Yeah, right. Which is a more classical motif in storytelling. Like I-, I thought that was cool. Yeah. So it was just funny. I'm six years old again, passing messages to my parents. So that's actually a huge clue, I think, that Tyler is imaginary. Yeah. Right. Because oh. he's he's making him remember an anxiety from his youth. Yeah. Right. Which is a good uh, lesson in the sense that maybe um, that we need to approach those anxieties and deal with them. Yeah. Hey, everybody. Dave and I just want to take a second to thank you all for listening. It's a total privilege to read the books and watch the movies and TV shows that we do for this podcast. And we hope it's something you find edifying, maybe even a little fun. It's really important to David and I that we're open and transparent about our thoughts on the podcast. If you have any clarifications, thoughts, ideas, requests, critiques, complaints, or curiosities, please feel free to get in touch with us. We have a Facebook group called Really True Fiction, where you can reach us. Also, you can send us an email at reallytruefiction at gmail.com. You can subscribe to Really True Fiction on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other major podcast hosting applications to get notifications when new episodes are released. If you like the podcast, please feel free to leave a rating or review on iTunes. This is a super good way to help new people find the show. Also, word of mouth is the most powerful and integral form of reference. If you feel like our podcast has value or merit, please tell your friends about it as we're always hoping to grow. Thank you once again for listening to Really True Fiction, as this podcast is a total blast to make. Have a great day, and may the force be with you. 
So I think we should talk a little bit about the scene where I would say, in retrospect, the narrator actually becomes Tyler, even though he doesn't know he's become Tyler yet. And it's the scene in his boss's office yes. where he beats himself up yep, yep. to blackmail his boss. To paying him and yeah. And again, the the meta aspect of this is really great because it's complicated because he's blackmailing a guy who's doing terrible things yeah. through the banality of and evil. Now, and now we have corporate sponsorship. That's the line, right? Yeah. Like, that's the beauty of this movie is the lines. Oh, there's just so Yeah, this is why I'm saying like there's specific cases that would be really interesting to listen to first-year philosophy students try to hash out with each yeah. other, right? Yeah. Because is the narrator unethical for blackmailing a company that is okay with signing off on X amount of deaths every year without recalls right right well i don't know <laughs> yeah. it's hard to i mean i i think that he could be a whistleblower that would be right. a more ethical thing but it's like you know it's still fun to chew on i guess this the kind of like note i made in in that whole scene is this is the moment where the narrator is willing to kind of do anything right right he's he's lost it's the moment where he's lost like he, it's they've been fraying. <laughs> you could like the way he dresses and smoking at work. Yeah, the the niceties have been fraying. This is when they're gone entirely, right? And so I feel like that scene. That's a scene that always Sticks I never forget. Right, I never forget right. because the just the look on his boss's face. It's a little bit hard to believe. Maybe everyone would believe him. Right, <laughs> that he beat him up. And uh, I guess this is why all offices should have cameras, maybe. But but also, like, I mean, how many people are going to do what he does to himself? Oh, right? and like, you that's know so what? Hard. You know what? I just I didn't even think about this, but like, actually, he's doing all that stuff to himself all the time, anyway. Yeah, he just doesn't know it. This is the first time he knows he's doing it, right? Yeah. If you think about all those other scenes where he's like fighting Tyler in the parking lot, he's just punching himself <laughs> and falling on the ground, and that's kind of what he's doing in this scene. So, okay, how do I want to frame this then for us to talk about? Is like. I think that there's something you are putting yourself into a certain form of chaos when you are willing to do anything. Right. right? Yeah. And, and I think it's something that is important to be able to know about yourself. At least at this stage of the movie, the narrator is still not able to control that chaos. He's not in charge of it. Yeah. So I think that scene makes me think of something like the danger of not having a fail safe of your own potential for chaos and, and right. destruction, right? It's too much chaos, not enough order. It's a lack of balance, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly, and it's it's a um, it's an overcorrection and a reactionary move to an actual injustice. Yeah, I mean, he's Evil, blackmailing them over injustice, right? He's blackmailing them, saying, "I know what you guys do," and he makes it work or is makes it believable by basically abusing himself. And then preying on the kind of natural assumption that no one would do that to themselves. Yeah. So, of course, this boss beat the shit out of him, right? Yeah, yeah. And so, I don't know, like, I feel like I'm all around this idea, but I can't quite grasp it where he's gone into this kind of nihilistic, Tyler Durden-esque mode. And, and it's not quite wrong, but it's not right either, right? There's a lot of ambiguity into what these guys, what he's doing in this movie. Well, it's interesting. He's pursuing his aims single in a single-minded manner. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But he's tr- but it seems to be doing as little damage to others as possible in the pursuit of that. Mm-hmm. Right? Like he he's actually trying to inspire these men, you know. What's I forget the 
the like there's that scene where he's like there's this guy who had a, not a very good job the waiter at some restaurant didn't have mm-hmm. a good job but he was a god when he when he beat up the maitre d at the food i mean and if you think about this what is ufc <laughs> right it's a really big fight club yeah yeah, yeah. Right? I mean, obviously, you'd you'd get some. There's a prof- You'd get some protesters around. Well, there's the technique and well, no, and there's the sport. Stuff. It's a sport. It's yeah. a, it's a, you know, it's not as if the, the people in in Fight Club weren't trying to, you know, beat each other. Like well, they, they had were. rules. Yeah, but like the joke I made before we started recording, I don't think we're allowed to talk about this movie. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yes. What's the first rule about yes, Fight Club? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Um, there's there's a, there's a parallel for sure well, it's not it's it's very obvious <laughs> yeah like he's trying to give these people something that they don't otherwise have mm, yeah uh, and i actually see this and and i think there's a really positive uh version of this in brazilian jiu-jitsu okay the people that i know who do it uh one of my best friends matt and then my brother-in-law chris really love it and i know and, and uh, our, our cousins our cousin mark also really loves mm. it and one of the most fascinating things about that, at least in my uh, experiences, that it changes the narrative in your own mind about how you approach a problem. Oh, interesting. Because Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, when you first start, you, it doesn't matter how big you are or how strong you are. You're just going to get crushed by these people who, who could be smaller than you or whatever, but they know the technique so well that, that you just, you can't beat them. Mm-hmm. And so you'll, for weeks, maybe right. even months, you'll just, you go into every bout and you just lose, right? Again and again and again, you just lose. And what is that teaching you? Because so much of what we're taught in how to live is like about succeeding, right. but what it teaches you is how to fail and learn from failure. Mm. And I think... Um, Another thing that I was I was mentioning, just like the Last Jedi, yeah, <laughs> yeah, the yeah. worst of the Star Wars movies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it really was the worst. But I, I see this. Uh, I was having this conversation with someone where I said, "Fighting is a lot." Because I don't know how many fights you've been in, but like <laughs> I find fighting is a lot like sex. I know this sounds weird. Like you are so in the moment. Yeah in a fight in a way you're not in almost anything else like you are in a lot of your atavistic and instincts come yeah, back and the adrenaline is pumping through you and you and you feel alive in a way you don't feel in a lot of other circumstances in, in human life mm. and so why would this be so addictive to people i mean we it is people love it mm-hmm. because it's a it is it is visceral. It is real. It's it, it pumps you full of adrenaline, mm-hmm. and they're giving that to people, and they're giving it to people who otherwise would never have really an opportunity in life to fight outside of like a bar brawl, which you know yeah, has a lot of has a lot of yeah problems. Well, actually, the, probably the funniest scene in the movie is when they show all the people trying to start fights with strangers. Yes, yes, and how hard it is. That's actually hilarious. Oh, that is it's, really it's When the really, priest, where he's like spraying him excuse with water. Me? And then, excuse and then me? Excuse me? And then I think he hits him. I'm sorry, I think you just sprayed me. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's true. So then, I mean, this raises a question then. So do you think the fight club was a good idea? Um, Whether it's a good idea or not, it gives something to it gives something to people that they don't otherwise have, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And no, so, and so, I sure. guess my point of of what is he what is he trying to do? Well, it seems to me that Tyler Durden hates society because he thinks it's weak. He's pretty clear on that. 
so we then, can maybe move into Tyler Durden because essentially, like you said, well, when, that when, moment when when the narrator becomes Tyler Durden, and then the next I don't know if it's the next scene exactly, but it's pretty close. Certainly, the next fight the narrator's in, he beats the shit out of Jared Leto's character, right? Yeah, like just brutally like in impression... a way that it seems like he hadn't before. Well, he hadn't, and because you weren't supposed to, like once someone tapped out, that was supposed to be exactly. Done. And then on top of that, it's done out of jealousy because he feels like Tyler is being kinder. Like it's it's kind of fucked up because well, he is Tyler A, yeah. but B, he he fe- is feeling. I mean, the impression you're given before you realize that they're the same person mm-hmm. is that Edward Norton's character, the, right, the narrator, is jealous, is of, jealous of, of, the, of the, this blonde yes, right. guy because he's getting more affection from Tyler, and he and he feels like things are getting away from him, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, that's a that's a that's a deeper insight is that the moment the narrator becomes Tyler is kind of the moment where Tyler gets too bad or too evil almost. Right. right? Yeah. It's a fun little narrative. Yeah. But that's a good segue into talking about Tyler's. Yeah. Like I, I, I understood all of the motivations of the people who wanted to be in the fight club, but I guess my question is something like, well, it's twofold. Cause there's, there's like, well, how do we help people who are disinfected and disenfranchised? There's got to be a better way. Right. I'm not even just talking about like finding something where to belong. I'm talking about like societally. Yes. Are we stuck with social systems that are just going to leave so many people disenfranchised, disenfranchised yeah. in some form or another, like, and not literally like by the vote, but just psychologically and even spiritually, I'd say. Uh, and then, the groups that you do find to belong, I would contrast the fight club to the support groups, right? Like they're both playing a very similar role, but I, I guess I'm just, I'm put off by brutality, hmm. right? So I don't actually like UFC. I don't right. watch no, yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I understand people enjoying the sport, but I don't like the brutality aspect of it. And, you know, I like other sports where there's physicality, yeah, but... Yeah. The phys- in all the sports I like, the physicality is instrumental to a different goal, which is, you know, whatever, putting the puck in the net or <laughs> getting a touchdown or right, something like yeah. that. And I hate the sports I like the most when players are being brutal to each other. Right. That so, boxing and boxing less, but boxing and UFC, I don't have a visceral attachment to. Mm-hmm. I have a visceral revulsion to. Yeah, which is interesting. I wonder. I, so it's interesting. So. I can't see myself being someone who would join a fight club. Well, I don't think you ever would. No, because, I know, but yeah. so so then what what do you think is different? Because you? you know me really well. Yeah, that's true. And you not saying you know the people who are in fight clubs really well. Right, right. And, and, but the thing is all the things you say about Brazilian jiu-jitsu make sense to me. So where do you think that gap is? I think uh you live a life of the mind. Right, and you're very happy in that place, and 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 your fulfillment and meaning and and value of yourself is is tied up in ideas. Okay, right, but I don't think a lot of people live there, hmm. and I think uh, I think also that you've thought through a lot of these questions that that they're asking in fight. Like what Fight Club is? is <laughs> so are you is saying the people who like UFC haven't thought? No, that. Oh, oh, okay, yes. Well, let me get to that. Let me yeah, get to okay. that. Okay. Um, Don't want to let that leave dangling for <laughs> you. No, 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 you. no. So what are the... Uh, I'm going to go to Fight Club and then I'm going to go to UFC. Okay. So what, they're looking for belonging, mm-hmm. which is the support group um, Which scenario. I relate to. Yeah. Right? I, I definitely 
enjoy belonging to groups of people too. They're looking for something that makes them feel alive, which we see multiple times. I mean, and what does a fight do? I can tell you right now, once once you've been in a fight, you feel alive, like you're uh, you're jacked up. <laughs> little digression. I've only been in two fights in my life, <laughs> yeah, and they're both on the same night. <laughs> and oh they were wow! Both on the first night I ever got drunk, <laughs> so I was 16. Right. And they weren't really fights because the one time I just pushed a guy who was smaller than me who got pushed at me. So he didn't want to fight me, but he just came out swigging. But he right. was like six inches shorter than me. So I just pushed him and he fell over. <laughs> and then his friend, who was about 80 pounds heavier than me, not all muscle, uh, right, right. came and knocked me over and sat on me. <laughs> and both times I was just hammered drunk. Right. So you don't so remember I don't, it at all. I, I have like very vague memories of it. Yeah. And yeah. no, I haven't been in any other fight. Like I've been in like sometimes in hockey you do this thing called like helmets and gloves or cage rage. They probably right. don't do it anymore because it's not, it would be too triggering for some people, but <laughs> you just fight in the locker room with a helmet, like with a cage on right. and gloves. And gloves, right, yeah. right. So anyway. It makes them feel, so it gives them, it gives them a sense of belonging, mm. gives them an activity that makes them feel incredibly alive, like on an right. adrenaline level. And okay, so, so of course they're going to, want to keep belonging to whatever that thing is Mm -hmm. right that that is i mean it's just it's such a human trait but i think there's so many lonely people in fact i've been doing a lot of reading about this recently but most are the low 20 percent of men between the ages of 35 and 45 say that they have no or one friend right uh friendship just dissipates yeah after university uh, generally after marriage and kids for men, they don't uh, make the same kind of um, emotional connections right. because they see manhood in a certain way. And I think we're seeing that twenty percent in Fight Club, like mm. like yeah, 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 probably younger, a little bit younger than that, but just this disenfranchised men who, I mean, biologically were built for hunting and fighting and and you know and strength and acts of strength and are spent or wasting their days, you know, serving food or not wasting their days, but you know, they just don't feel that it has the same meaning. Mm-hmm. So why do people love UFC? I, I mean, I think that may be a temperament thing, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, that's true. Like I think that in your case, you don't like violence. Violence is something you've, you've, you've talked about a lot, kind of finding appalling. Well, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm not going to quibble over the, semantics right right, right. right. yeah I, I don't like brutality yeah you don't like for sure and uh some people really do yeah right and some people are very animalistic about like the desire yeah and to... so i i actually want to give everyone the benefit of the doubt when they're watching ufc and assume they're just watching the technique no i mean like <laughs> i watch ufc because i want to see someone get their shit beat out of them so i mean i like the, it's, it's, the i moments, guess it's gladiatorial the moments that i find boring in ufc are when like they're actually doing like mm. the the technique on the wall or they're on the ground like <laughs> trying to like get position i want to see someone get punched out right like that's why i watch ufc oh, you'd be uh you'd be a season ticket holder at the coliseum <laughs> hey? oh for sure for sure <laughs> yeah so okay well then to overcome my own bias here then, I think it gets pathological when Fight Club turns into Project Mayhem, well, right? And it becomes cultish. So how how do you when do you know it's going into a dark place and how do you divert it and what does it grow into? Like what is the what is the non pathological next step for Fight Club instead of Project Mayhem? I think it's a Brazilian Jiu Jitsu oh, okay. um you know, like uh I don't know what they call them, dojo. Mm. Right, it's it's a group of people getting together and 
participating in this thing that they that 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 has brought them so much joy and meaning and personal strength Mm -hmm. and appreciating the art of that and so what do you think was missing in the narrator to not allow him to see to to move it into a positive way but let it continue on a pathological path well because i don't think fight club for him was ever about those things that we were describing so so for him it wasn't about the things that it attracted the other people to it and i think there's a yeah i don't like the people that were attracted Mm -hmm. and the reason that it had i often i think this this is the case with cults religions multi-level marketing companies whatever it is the the thing that it is attracting the people that are being taken advantage of, which is realistically what's happening here. What What is the narrator slash Tyler Durden, Durden doing? He is brainwashing and conditioning mm-hmm. a group of men to enact his, um, you know, broad plan mm-hmm. for society. Right. He, he's decided there's a certain way he wants society to be, which isn't how it is. And that the only way to accomplish that is he needs troops. Mm-hmm. So he needs essentially disposable people. <laughs> and these are all the disposable people of society. So it's kind of cynical of him, hey? I think he is very cynical. Yeah. And he's, and he's very, very nihilistic. Yeah. And, and all he really cares about is like animalistic strength. Like, mm. like, what is his vision for the future? He wants people hunting deer. And pounding it on the, and I think, and I think there's a line that I think encapsulates a lot of this, and it's when Edward Edward Norton has just beat the shit out of uh, the bl- the blonde guy, right? And he says, "I wanted to destroy something beautiful." <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I think that's the soul of not just Tyler Durden but the narrator. Well, because he's so disenfranchised with existence itself. Yeah, I, I think it's very. Uh, multi-layered though because when tyler enters the movie enters the consciousness of the narrator the narrator says to him single serving friendship right which is his little quip for you know a friend he makes on a flight and uh you're clever how's that uh, and it's and and and, um yeah tyler's like that's very clever and then he says how's that working out for you being clever and he's very not impressed right yeah and so like this beginning of tyler working on the narrator's mind i actually think is very positive no i agree right like the intro of tyler into narrator's life is important and positive for the narrator because if you think about it what the narrator is doing there is he's doing a quip to cover over any real feeling i mean it's something like there's a great line from nietzsche when he uh, that where he says uh, a joke is the epitaph to the death of a feeling oh <laughs> and it's kind of something like especially a sarcastic remark or a facetious one is often used to put away a real feeling and not bring it back out again right and the narrator is full of these kind of things to gloss over his ikea yin yang table life <laughs> that he doesn't actually like and and that manifests in well, it's a single-serving friendship, right? Well, like, like I think the deep reality that actually isn't Tyler Durden, it's it's actually the narrator, is that he kind of hates society. Like mm. he sees the whole show. I, he's obviously very intelligent, uh, and he sees things for what they are, and he thinks they're empty. Okay, well, so then then this is how I'm going to phrase it. Then is that whatever it is in the narrator that wakes up Tyler Durden, right? Like no. totally conceiving of Tyler as part of his consciousness that he's not quite aware of. I don't quite know what 
would it be schizophrenia? It'd have to be or, uh, or, or multiple personality yeah, disorder. Yeah, like yeah. I don't know the exact diagnosis for the narrator, but he dregs up this personality that's him, and it introduces both really important positive things to, into his life, but also really dark and negative things into his life. And how is he supposed to go about knowing which is which? Other than it seems to me he suffers from the same thing Marty did in, in True Detective, which yeah. was inattention, right? He's not he's not being made conscious of all of the parts of his own motivations. No. And Tyler starts that process for him, but not all the way. And that's why it's kind of interesting again about this movie is that it doesn't give us a clear line of which parts of Tyler are worth resurrecting at the cost of ones that are going to make the narrator terrible and evil and want to destroy something beautiful. They're all just kind of melded into the same person. Yeah. Right? There's no there's no demarcations here between the part of Tyler that says, how are you going to live knowing you're going to die? A very positive message in my books. It's like, how's that working out for you being clever? A very po- positively timed question to think over your own yeah, your own way. But is it is it Tyler who's also making the narrator want to destroy something beautiful? Like this is what's kind of one of the mixed signals of this movie. Is it almost it's like it's saying you can't really actually drag up these positive things without like how are you going to not also go into these super negative eras of your mind well, as well? And that's the question, right now. Now that you've woken up to the inevitability of death, and you've accepted it as something that's going to happen, not something you're afraid is going to happen. Well, what's Tyler's response to that? I mean, the narrator still hasn't accepted it, even after the burnt hand, because mm-hmm. you're when they're in the car, like, he, he can't handle this. You know, I think I might have actually just come up to an answer to my own question, because I was thinking about it. I think the point where it, it gets to a bridge too far, let's say, from the, the Tyler Durden way of doing things, is when he starts making excuses based on what other people are doing in the world, right? So... There's a lot of blame that Tyler lays yes. on the feet of other people, right? Yeah. Yep. We are the middle children of history. No one's looking out for us. We're we are we're a bu- we're a generation of men raised by right. women. Right. I'm I often wonder is it another woman really what we need? Yeah, no, I think this kind and Tyler doesn't quite rise to this level, but it's it's an easy pathway from that kind of rationalization to blame to a level that is very dangerous that doesn't quite we don't see it in the movie which is resentment mm-hmm. right now it it seems to me impossible for Tyler Durden to be doing what he's doing w- without resentment in his heart yeah. right and i and i think that that's the malignant aspect of Tyler Durden yes. for the narrator is that when he starts blaming others for his own predicament. Like the positive parts i guess are all the parts where Tyler is focusing it simply on the narrator yeah. Right. And saying, how's that working out for you? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Not, not society. Um, what's that doing to you <laughs> from an outward perspective? I don't know. I was just thinking about that now. Right. Yeah. Like, I think that that's kind of because if you let resentment creep in, yeah, why not destroy something beautiful? Well, I think, I think that's the great, um, the great battle of being a human, right? Is, are you going to take responsibility for your? You can you can decide not to. You can blame other people for your problems. We've talked about this on the podcast. I don't know how many times. You can blame other people, mm-hmm. but it's not going to make anything better. Yeah. Well, and it 
it puts other people in harm's way. Yeah. <laughs> in in this yeah. movie anyway, right? Now, okay. <laughs> this is tricky stuff cuz I'm not like I'm not pulled in the direction of saying, "Oh, well, the world is actually fine." Uh no. <laughs> like I still think that there are these the, like a lot of the injustices that Tyler's pointing out are not fake. Right? No, they're very. I think it, this is why so many people like watching this movie. Yeah. Well, and I mean, you think about Gen X specifically. I know you have <laughs> yep, <laughs> fun yep. opinions on this generation, <laughs> but they're on the heels of the baby boomers. So they are, there's just way less of them than the baby boomers. And so then the boomers would have been clogging up all of the jobs and yep. all of the important promotions. And there's just been way more people in the in the generation before them. So there wouldn't have been the same kind of opportunities, even just natural opportunities of like a more equitable distribution of people in yes, every generation, right? Yeah, yeah. right? So there's like that, that, that's a good definition of a structural issue yes. for these people, right? Yeah. Because then... 1999 all of these mid-20s would have been born in the mid-70s early 70s and like just a tough time to find your way in the world i would say yes yeah and so i don't want to gloss over very real difficulties that people might have and and especially disaffected people this is why i think the fight club and the support groups are such an important part is because those are the only things that seem to satisfy all these people's souls right right project mayhem makes them cheer but you don't get the sense that they're like feeling fulfilled like they're they're feeling nihilistically fulfilled yeah but not spiritually fulfilled not in the way that they were in the fight club or or or, or the people in the support groups right i like that yeah i think i think what it goes too far you know i mean here's where i think they go too far Mm. when it turns into an attempt to change the world instead of changing yourself especially through violent means. Yes. Right? I mean, because really what we have in Tyler Durden is someone who's capable of of rallying the discontent of a large group of people and then turning that into a tool with which he can exact his vision of what he wants the world to be like. Mm. And I think people believe in Tyler Durden because he's given them all those things, a sense of belonging. He's given them a... uh, uh, adrenaline rush a sense of purpose and meaning but um what has he done with that he's decided to burn the whole like burn the mm-hmm. fucker down like well and i mean <laughs> some men just want to see the world burn well right? as a passing aside i think it is a useful psa in terms of um it's not in a culture or a social or a society's interest to have large amounts of young men with nothing to do no. Bad idea. <laughs> Bad yeah. idea, right? So this is a complicated idea. It, I've, I've heard of this idea before. It's complicated to make your head wrap around it exactly because it seems kind of counterintuitive. But it was uh, I think it was Eric Weinstein talking on his podcast. He did an AMA uh, or a Q&A about um, the idea that it might be in, uh, I don't know, I, I don't think he used the term the 1%, but like the richest people of a society – counterintuitively it might be in their interest to give away a lot of their money to avoid mobs yeah coming to their house right like at what point is it a self-interested thing to give away money yeah (laughs) yeah which is a weird way to think about it but i think given human nature it's not a crazy thing to price in right now that's a stark way of putting it like obviously i think a more realistic way is like well what kind of maybe philanthropy 
and like legitimate philanthropy or or job opportunities are in the interests of very wealthy people yeah in societies where maybe there are a lot of disaffected especially disaffected young men because as we see it's not exactly the the kindest cohort of people or the most understanding no <laughs> right no. so again these are one of the that's one of the hard questions of existence like uh, uh, we don't want to talk about death we don't want to talk about disaffected young men yeah. inequality right and my whole intuition on these things I, and I, sh- I feel like this is a real sentiment i share with george orwell the power to face unpleasant facts right right like i i can look at the unpleasantness of the world without flinching too hard I don't want to live there. I don't want to uh, mentally. I don't want to live in the dark places mentally. No. But they don't scare me. So I feel well situated to talk about them from a problem solving right. perspective right. because I'm even willing to talk about them in the first place. And I, I know you are too. Like this is we it's part of our podcast yes. to do yeah. this, but it's just not a sexy one liner say like there's a lot of unemployed young men and this is a problem. So you might want to think about giving away some of your money. Right, right, right. <laughs> now, that's obviously a slightly tongue-in-cheek way of putting it, but I don't think it totally misses the mark either, right? No. Well, and the problem is not actually that these men are unemployed. Mm-hmm. And so they, don't, they, have a, they have a vacuum of meaning yeah, in their lives. that's the problem. Right? And in an interesting parallel, you know, 21 years later, I think that there's still a high percentage of young men who feel that vacuum, but I think maybe this is the soma brave new world like i think video games and porn have yeah. actually taken the bite out the of the edge that. off yes <laughs> right well yeah no i'm i i think and um, i and i have again it's not an ethical thing i have no i mean there are any moral arguments i would make against video games and porn have nothing to do with the fact that you play them or engage in no, them right they no. they have they're all more idiosyncratic than that but it is a kind of Soma-esque. Oh, uh, I mean, I've had some conversations, I'm sure you have too, with uh, women around my age who are, you know, single in their 30s, and there's just no good prospects. Right, <laughs> yeah. Because all the yeah. men around their age are, uh, you know, uh, w- what's the term? Women are often hyper- hypergamous. They uh, want to date along, along and above yes. the social... Hypergamy. Yeah, 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 yeah. right? And so there's all of these really impressive women in the world now and not that many impressive men. Oh man, this is a big, I feel like this is a big problem with education, right? Is yeah. like a lot of, a lot more women are getting degrees now than men in, in most fields. I think there's some STEM fields where it's still more men than women, but like mm-hmm. law, like a lot of, but, fields. but education, post-secondary education they're in just, general, they're just getting way more. And it's like, mm-hmm. well, where, I mean, who are the men you're going to marry? They're uh, in their basement playing video yeah. games and self-improving. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so like that's yeah. interesting, and and I mean this is again in a bit of an aside. I, I a couple of years ago I read a quote or, a, or an article of Brad Pitt saying he doesn't think Fight Club could be made in today's world. No, it both wouldn't make sense and it'd be too intense for people. He thought right, and we even I even made a comment to you about how probably given all the buildings exploding they after 9-11 after 9-11 they would have made because this movie was made two years before 9-11 or at least it would have had to been a while after or maybe set in a different city yeah yeah (laughs) well i actually don't know if it's set in new york we don't yeah we're not given a clear it could be la could be we're all the banks in u.s they're in they're in uh, new york okay so 
and credit card companies too yeah pretty much I okay think. yeah so probably new york probably but, but like just i think brad pitt's point was more along the lines of um it would be considered toxic masculinity yes which it is yeah <laughs> right yeah now this is a deeper point that i could rail on for a long time but enough of anybody in the world who wants a piece of fiction either not made or censored because of a literal interpretation of what's going on in the movie. Right. The whole point of stories and narrative is to be deeper than you think. <laughs> yes. <laughs> to tell yes. a much deeper truth about the human condition. So if you want to cancel Fight Club just because you see sweaty men fighting each other and that's brutal and that's toxic masculinity, you're missing the whole goddamn point of this kind of movie. Yes. <laughs> right? Yes. And I think that was the point Brad Pitt was making. It was like, well, it's just not the cultural appetite for this no. kind of movie. No. Which, and this is a whole different point, I, I have a deep appreciation for the 1990s. I think that decade managed to maximize freedom of expression in the arts in a way that I don't know has ever been done before or since. So Yeah, I'd agree. There was a fun, this is narrative, There was a, I, I'm just realizing talking about it, there's a fun parallel of that scene with the narrator and his boss with Tyler and Lou. The, right. The, yes. The owner of the building where he was fighting, where Tyler lets Lou beat the shit out of him, and then just bleeds all over him and says, "Please let us stay." And yeah. his craziness is what convinces Lou. Oh, that's such a good. I I honestly didn't put that together till now. The that parallel a, of yeah, those two yes. scenes, hey? right? Yeah. Essentially, the narrator and or slash Tyler letting themselves get the shit beat out of them. You know, narrator doing it to himself. T- narrator as Tyler letting Lou do it to him. Yeah. Oh, that's such a good because clue, hey? because it's it shows that he's not afraid. Yes, yeah. right, like and willing to go further. Yes, than anyone else, it, which is why all the people follow him. Yeah, because he's, he's willing to do things that they're not. Yeah, or at least he's willing to do things first. Yes, right. Oh, and then he shows them that it's doable. Notice they all get burned on their hands, right? Because he's he's teaching them all the same lesson. Mm-hmm. Thoughts on Marla in the Oof, movie? Like, talk about someone who. Uh, who really Helena Bonham Carter? Like she's not doing well, right? Yes, right. In, in it, in any stretch of the imagination, and she kind of gets sucked into this being treated like shit, mm-hmm. right? And and I don't really understand the ending, uh, like why she shows back up. She kind of hates him. Well, she has a couple lines, or one line anyway, where she's like, "Sometimes you're so sweet." Or something like that. Like you sometimes just you're so, an asshole. Yeah, and yeah. then you're just like, I mean, really. Uh, sometimes you're tired. She's preempting uh, Katy Perry, hot, hot and cold. cold. <laughs> <laughs> right. So yeah. I guess her sensitive side is pulled towards well, Tyler's the, sensitive side. Yeah. Strongly. And I mean, look, it's been a while, but I have had f- very strong feelings for people before. And. When you have a strong feeling about something, you're willing to overlook a lot. <laughs> yeah, and I think there's Which also, they, they seem like they're similar people. They're both travelers, right? They're both going to these groups. They are they both know that there's something. I mean, she says, uh, she's the one that says the line, like, there's something about talking to someone they think you're going to die. They actually listen. Mm-hmm. And she's the one, like she, she's looking for connection. She's, mm-hmm. she's all, and, and, and they see that in each other. They're actually fairly similar people. Like her presentation and aesthetic is completely different than his, right? It's, it's actually kind of sweet or, or heartwarming to think about how two people from coming from such different sides of the tracks 
can actually be suffering from the same psychological pain. Yeah. And, yeah. and that they can find a connection there. It's actually very hopeful to think that maybe narrator and Marla could have an actually functional relationship. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Like who knows? But, but I mean, even her subconscious shows, I think when, when they're, they do the suicide call and the police come and, and she's yelling and about she's herself, yelling about all the terrible things about herself in a jokey way. And I've experienced that before with people where they're saying something as a joke, but you can tell that like, it's just not funny enough. And the timing's not good enough that you can tell that there's like, there's more going on here than just yeah flippant humor. And it's like a defense mechanism for her. Right. Yes. Yeah. So I felt kind of sad for her in that way. Oh, there's a lot of, I mean, she's, I think she's kind of like cast as that character that we kind of like, Oh, mm-hmm. you're not doing well and you're not being treated well. Yeah, she put, she, because she's like the bridge between the narrator and Tyler, she provides a lot of clues for the twist. Yes, which is which is fun. Good. And yeah. the one I caught this time that I never was was when she was wearing that dress, and she's like all happy to show him, and he's yeah. just so dismissive. And she says something like, "Why are you like this? Yeah. Like, why? What's wrong yeah. with you?" She's a fun character to think about once you know the twist of the movie, yes. right? Yeah, even exactly. more so, I would say. But she isn't even a very huge participant. No, 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 no. She's um, she's there to add the sex and the and the kind of weirdness. Yeah, I guess so. She doesn't really do anything else, does no. she? We don't get huge dialogues or anything. Yeah, just um, her place in relating to the other two. Yeah, yeah. Here, okay. So this is another maybe one of these unpleasant facts, but there's this this the, one of the early scenes in the movie when they're at the testicular cancer support group. And one of the guys is giving his testimony and his ex-wife just had a baby with another man. Yeah. And it's like implied that he left, she left him because he had testicular cancer and I guess couldn't reproduce, couldn't have kids. Yeah. Couldn't have kids. And um, this just made me think of like how, how hard the world is for some people Tuh. and just like how unlucky some people are I know. to like, you get testicular cancer, and so your wife leaves you because she wants to have a baby. And then she actually has a baby with someone else. Just thinking about that guy. Yeah. Talk about an unpleasant fact of reality, hey? I know that that's life for some people, oh, right? That, that really crushed me. <laughs> this was a funny one. That character, Chloe, who was dying yes. of cancer, yes. and her biggest complaint wanted. is no one would she sleep a, with her. She wasn't afraid of death anymore, but she just wanted to get laid one more time. Yeah, exactly. Right? I mean, that That's is a like, good one. It's Yeah. It was, uh, I, I mean, I don't really have a comment on that <laughs> other than, like, that's a, that's a comprehensible. <laughs> There's another movie actually like that called, um, oh, uh, this would actually be a great movie for us to do, called The Life of David Gale. No. Oh. Kevin Spacey and Laura Linney. And she's, I think she's got cancer. And so they sleep together. Oh. That's like the extent of the memory. There you go. <laughs> or or the, it's like, oh, it's exactly like that. It's hilarious that. Tyler puts all the pornographic images in the movies. I know. And then yeah. they do it at the very end of the movie we're watching. Well, they also have flashes of Tyler. Like, he'll, yeah. they, like they flash yeah. him in. Again, more clues to his reveal of being not real. Yeah, exactly. Right? And um, I liked in that same, like, there's a, there, there's a, that, those handful of fourth wall breaks, and there's that even joke he makes to Edward Norton at the end 
flashback humor. Yes. Because the end scene is also yeah. the same as the beginning yeah. of the movie. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. it's like depending on our memory of the beginning of the movie. And just, I guess we didn't really talk about this. I mean, we hinted at it, but the just um, how easily something sad like disaffected young people can turn into something ugly like project mayhem and then how it's so how cultish thinking is maintained mm-hmm. right so i'm thinking specifically of the scene where oh yeah meatloaf was in this movie <laughs> right when meatloaf or or bob dies and the narrator before he knows he's tyler durden is devastated because this was actually a friend of his and he was um saying his name is Robert Paulson. We need to remember him. And, and they just twist it, and they're like, oh, in death, we in, have a yeah, name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, they, the, the, it's a perfect example of them already having a destination and then making well, the every, journey fit. Yeah, every <laughs> all data points being filtered through an ideology, exactly. and therefore that you're always going to come up with yeah. an answer. Yeah, yeah. So, like, it's not like Edward Norton could be giving them a new directive. No. It was just a different way to interpret the old directive because it's what they want it to be already, right? Yeah. This is like... It's it's the the members of a cult are, are what create... I mean, everyone thinks, oh, the leader of the cult has the brainwash them. No, like, these people want to believe the things. They, they want believe. to believe, and then there's a lot of peer work yes. done to keep people in line, yeah, right? exactly. Even self In normal life... Maybe a group could be like, well, you know, maybe we should change this policy because this is this is a person and it's yeah. important to like remember them. It's yeah. like, well, only in death. Only we in have death. no names in life. So, yeah, I'm a little bit wary to say anything final about Fight Club because I know this movie is so important to so many people. Yeah. But I, I just, I think the real lesson from this movie is about how Tyler. His big problem is that he's unconscious. He he acts unconsciously, and it's given as insomnia. But really, I think it's just that he's not. He says this a lot of times. I don't know. It's like, have I been sleeping? Yeah. Have I been not paying attention? And we'll probably talk about this more thoroughly, or or more. Well, it's actually a very similar genre style when we do David Foster Wallace yes. in the future. Yeah. But I'm really starting to glean onto this idea of the unconscious decision making of life being the prime pitfall of it. I like I I think I think uh you're dead on. And maybe I'm just reading into things I want to see, but that's what that's what really feel like the the tragedy of everything that happens to the narrator is that he's doing it but it still happens to him. Right? Yeah, he doesn't even get to be act, the active participant in his own life. In his own decision making. And yet he's still making things happen. And yeah. that's kind of like a, that's not a dissimilar metaphor to the way it is. Like things happen to us or like we're still living, we're going through the world. But to just kind of like, you know how I, sometimes I don't like this experience. Well, you know, we'll just have to see what happens. Yeah. I was like, well, that removes yourself as a variable. <laughs> right. <laughs> right? Yeah. Watching the world go by. <laughs> oh, and, yeah. and, and it feels like a lot of sense. I mean, there's a sense of hopelessness that is real. But I guess part of it is like, it doesn't have to be that way. No. And, and I, I think, think that's what this movie, yeah, I agree. Yeah. It doesn't have to be this way. And And yet the double lesson of if you let 
the unconscious conscious, you need to stay conscious the whole time because otherwise it can get pathological in its own way. Yeah. I mean, I think that is how pathologies begin is Mm -hmm. is when we we suppress them and we we hide them. And I think, I guess my final thought and and really the, the... the one that I had rewatching this with you was only after you lose everything mm. can you do anything. Yeah. And how do you lose everything? Like, I want you to think about something. All of the things you're stressed about, all the little things in your life, what is that compared to your mortality? Mm-hmm. Will any of it matter? <laughs> and if if really it doesn't matter, or or maybe it matters more than anything else, mm. maybe we can stop living our lives in this half half cocked panic and you know have a near life experience (laughs) yeah 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 totally now like i said at the beginning i i don't find these guys heroes yeah in this now and i and i would have i mean i never would have thought about this movie this deeply 10 years ago when i watched it but basically tyler he kind of had this cult He, he he himself was a mythic figure in culture for like yes. 10 yeah. years oh, yeah. after this movie came out. And now I don't see him that way. Like I had him even in my mind built up as this kind of like archetype of a man that is like amazing right. and mysterious and uh, has it all figured out. And now I think some of him is really intelligent and worth meditating on. And some of it is Toxic. just, is just, yeah, like you want to, uh, well, I don't want to call it toxic masculinity other than it was a male. But right. like, it's a toxic way of trying to... Appro- a lot of... a lot of his, The third act uh, remedies that Tyler suggests are toxic. You are not special. Yeah. <laughs> and again, he's addressing a problem with a bad solution. Yeah. You know? Agreed. And so... I'm not going to say I didn't like watching it this time, but I didn't feel as inspired by... Fight Club, as all the other times I'd seen it's like, Fight Club, great movie, one of the best ever. And now I watched it this time, I'm like, hmm, I don't quite relate to these guys in the way that I feel like I'm maybe used to. I mean, that's an interesting thing. Maybe it means we're maturing. (laughs) Well, don't uh, (laughs) don't put, (laughs) don't quit your day job on that one. (laughs) I won't, I won't. So, thanks for listening. This has been another episode of Really True Fiction. Uh, My name is Luke Mason. And my name is David Parker. May the force be with you. You know, may the force be with you and don't go fight a stranger. <laughs> find a different way to find a different way to find meaning. Meaning in life. But maybe join say. a jujitsu. Yeah, jujitsu or um, support group. <laughs> I love Therapy. it. Therapy. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>